This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Hanover Spielt. John Kavalik. The Brothers Zarnayev. And Pascal Beverly Randolph. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The barely intelligible voice coming over the tannoy tells us that it is time again for a travel advisory, and this time... It is Robin's turn to engage in the ill-disguised gloating and preening that this segment always heralds. So, Robin, tell us <laughs> about the great electorate of Hanover and its spielt. It's spielt. So, I was, uh, I'm just back from Hanover spielt, uh, which, as the name and the introduction implies, is held in the beautiful German city of Hanover. It's a convention of about 600 attendees. It uh, happens every year at this time, but not every year does it have special guests from out of the country. Uh, I was lucky enough about 10 years ago to be at Hanover Spielt 9, and this time around to celebrate their 20th anniversary, they brought me and another uh, favorite past guest, John Kavalik, to their lovely festival of uh, gaming and nerd culture. Mostly it's very gaming-focused. Uh, there's uh, uh, board games and card games, but it has a really strong... Uh, role-playing focus, so I got to do a number of uh, different seminars and, and role-playing events and also sort of more informal invitations for the fine gamers of the greater Hanover area to discuss what they want to discuss about gaming with me. And I also got to stay a, a few extra days around the convention to soak in the lovely history and ambiance of Hanover, which I did not get to do the last time I came because for Whatever scheduling reason way back 10 years ago, I felt that I could only do the show. And so last time I was there, I saw the convention hall, the hotel, and a game store, and the subway. But this time I saw a lot more than that. Well, I guess we should start with the uh, maybe the convention and then uh, lead into a more general how lovely and wonderful is Hanover. So is the convention, does there, does there seem to be a focus... Uh, equivalently on German language uh, role-playing games, because and obviously German board games are among the best in the world, and you could have a whole convention just about them in pretty much any gamer city in the world. But uh, I'm interested in the role-playing segment. Is there a, is there a focus on, on both English language and German language games, the way that there was in uh, Sweden? Or is it more of a, you know, Schwarze Auge and Demeter and Drakener, and, oh, also, there are English language role-playing games. It was mostly, I would say, English language originating games translated into German or run in German. There were a couple of De Schwarze Auge events held among the, the other role-playing events, but there was like Deadlands and Firefly and stuff that you would not be surprised to see at any other equivalently sized convention. Uh, De Schwarze Auge is, uh, for those who don't know, is the a game that occupies the ecological niche in Germany that in many other places is occupied by Dungeons and Dragons because for historical reasons, they sort of got in there and occupied the space that the uh, translators of uh, 
Dungeons and Dragons in German sort of wobbled it somehow. And so there's this other default fantasy role-playing game that is uh, the equivalent of D&D and, of course, uh, receives perhaps the equivalent amount of uh, patronizing condescension from the cooler gaming set. So there is sort of a, a humorous affection for that game, but it's certainly not uh, dominant uh, there. And, and when you talk to people at uh, the seminars, it's clear that they have a really wide knowledge of uh, role-playing games in, in all of their various flavors. So is there, are there um, uh, German uh, games that the, that the cool and the cognoscentive and the hipstery uh, gamer of uh, Germany, the story gamer, uh, prefers to play? Or are they playing uh, English games the same way that British people will drink Budweiser as though they think that that's a good idea? I didn't see anything posted on the game schedule that was a German game I did not recognize other than the Schwarze Auge. I don't know if that necessarily means that there are no uh, you know, German equivalents of dogs in the vineyard, or that was just you know the selection of things that was available for people to play at the show that people wanted to run. So was there a dealer's room at all? I, I know in uh, at Gothcon there was a, a pretty good dealer's room that was stocked, I think, with the entire Swedish role-playing industry, uh, which was actually really interesting and really diverse for a country with only 9 million people uh, who speak its language. Yeah, the, the facility that it was held at this year, and I think next year they're looking to expand to a bigger facility because they've sort of hit a cap with this one, was kind of an interesting building that I don't think there's an equivalent for in North America. It's a former school that was then converted into a combination of event space, but also uh, there are various businesses or institutions, uh, cultural institutions that have their offices within this uh, four-story structure. And for example, there's a a bike store as part of it, and there was a, a sort of a specialist library occupying one of the the bigger rooms upstairs and the rest of the space is then rented out for events like this and it meant that the dealer's room had to sort of be distributed both between tables in the hallways and also sort of taking up part of one of the big play spaces so you didn't have the big uh, exhibit hall, for example, that you would get at Dragon Meet, which is only actually, in, attendance-wise, only slightly larger than uh, Hanover's built, but has a big exhibit hall that has lots of space and is a real focus for the energy of the event. And I think that's one of the reasons that they're going to try and expand into a bigger facility next year, is to have something where they can get more sponsorship and help from the various German manufacturers and, and dealers and distributors by giving them a uh, better space with more room to operate and more sort of through traffic that they can uh, get people as they go around because the uh, sort of intimacy and divided nature of the space meant that it felt like a much smaller, cozier con than the number 600 attendees would lead you to expect. Yeah, I know that, uh, for example, Pegasus that do um, a lot of the German distribution also have a publishing arm and they produce probably some of the best Cthulhu gaming material in the world. It's uh, in German, uh, much of it, sadly. But uh, I, I didn't know if there, is there a, is there a strong uh, Cthulhu component to the, to the scene there in Hanover, or is it uh, just one among many? There is definitely a big Cthulhu component for a couple of reasons. One of them is that the uh, so-called German con-running mafia, who run a bunch of different events, over the course of the year, some, not all of which are yearly, some of them come from Chaosium fandom, and so that translates into a big interest in 
Cthulhu, so if you wanted to make a multi-tentacled entity reference or discuss Shoggoths, there were plenty of people who were uh, immersed in that, and I'm not, I certainly saw at least one Call of Cthulhu event being run, and Pegasus itself had a big presence at the con. They were, uh, had banners for their various products all over, and they were uh, making sure that there were lots of blank Munchkin cards for uh, John Kavalik <laughs> to spend all of his time uh, drawing. Illustrating, yes. Yeah. Uh, on uh, as part of uh, the, the uh, signing that he was uh, doing there, and uh, so they uh, were at least at a remove, uh, keeping the whip hand over uh, Midwestern cartoonists. Well, there you go. That's good to know. Uh, it, it's always sad if if you get John Kavalik to a convention and he, and he doesn't come back unable to work for a week. <laughs> he, he did have his arm in a brace actually. Yeah. So no, I, I've seen it happen. I mean, it's it's hilarious because it isn't happening to me, but it's still. Um, uh, but it's still pretty awful. <laughs> it, it puts in perspective how uh, relatively easy it is to be a, a game designer guru at, at one of these it's, events. Because uh, when people come up to you, they are expecting uh, perhaps a bit of advice or a comment on something. But you uh, don't have to do anything that uh, expends calories. Yes, the, the, the autographing is, is the hardest work you do, pretty much. Um, so what, uh, speaking of the people who come up to game designers, uh, what do the German uh, game design audience... What did, they, what did they want to know about? What did they ask? And was it in some way uh, indicative of a different uh, gaming environment than we get, say, at uh, Indianapolis or Columbus or any of the uh, uh, heartland of uh, cholesterol-choked heartland of American gaming? Um, I'm not sure if this represents the German gaming scene or just the demographic of people who go to this convention, but the at the seminars and uh, other events, it was just a very high level of question. Uh, and people were, uh, for example, at the Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering slash Ask Me Your Game Mastering Advice Questions event. The questions were all at a very high level. Uh, the uh, discussion of story in role-playing event, again, people had really great incisive questions. And so uh, it may be a matter of self-selection or the inherent studiousness of the German soul, but certainly uh, this would be comparable to the sorts of questions that you would get at, at Dragon Meet or at a seminar at Gen Con rather than, for example, uh, something like the Calgary Comic Con where you're getting people who are having a chance to talk to game designers for the very first time and some of the questions are occurring on a more elementary level where you uh, have more room to blow people's minds with simple bits of role-playing wisdom that they have not managed to uh, come across quite yet. Cool. So, uh, leaving, I guess, the, the gaming uh, scene in, in its bizarrely repurposed school, what about the, the glorious city of Hanover? What, what should a North American who has uh, found themselves there not miss, besides Hitler's Lake? So, uh, Hitler's Lake, which you're referring to an image that I uh, posted on the social media sites, is across the uh, road from the Sprengel Museum, which is a museum of uh, mostly 20th century and contemporary art. And uh, they had uh, quite an impressive uh, collection for the small size of the institution. And I was uh, lucky enough that several of the figures who are going to appear in uh, my Trail of Cthulhu work in progress, uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, were featured there. So they had a special exhibit of later works on paper by an artist named uh, Merritt Oppenheim, who was... Uh, is sort of a satellite figure of the Surrealists in Paris and is most famous uh, for making a 
a cup and saucer set covered in fur that was <laughs> exhibited as uh, among uh, a couple of famous surrealist exhibitions and is sort of exemplary of the surrealist style of ready-made art. And uh, she's also famous for some uh, uh, pretty uh, hot pictures that uh, Man Ray uh, took of her. And uh, later she, uh, I mean, the Surrealists were a huge boys club. And one of the issues of the Dreamhounds of Paris book is uh, finding uh, female characters that are actually playable. And uh, she is uh, was perhaps sort of a minor figure at that time. But it was great to see her uh, later work, which has this real sort of uh, serenity along with this sort of surrealist uh, whimsy. She's got a lot of uh, drawings of uh, uh, butterflies and works on paper that still have that sort of uh, surrealist uh, weirdness and creepiness, but also a sort of a, a sense of beauty and calm that you don't necessarily always associate with the surrealist movement. There was also a room full of uh, Picassos. They were all gray Picassos. I don't know if that's because they a regional art museum could only afford the gray Picassos, or if there was... <laughs> some the gray sort of... ones, you can have them for half price. Right. Um, <laughs> or just, you know, they seemed more serious in gray when whoever purchased them purchased them. Or, or it's that uh, studiousness of the German soul coming back at you again. <laughs> right. Uh, there was a, a room of Max Ernst pieces, including a, a door and a, uh, another piece that was taken from uh, the poet uh, Paul Eloir's apartment, very famously uh, Ernst, who is in a uh, Menage et Toi with uh, Paul Eluard, his wife Gala, uh, later uh, Gala Dali, uh, and uh, he famously painted every surface of their apartment with weird Max Ernstian images, some of which were quite disturbing and uh, some of which uh, look a little bit uh, Cthulhu y, thereby uh, reinforcing the thesis of the book. <laughs> and so they had a, an actual door uh, and a, a green menacing hand. Uh, so I was uh, delighted to see that uh, sort of touchstone of the, the, the story of the Surrealists. And, of course, the uh, exhibit uh, goes beyond just uh, this Surrealist movement. And uh, there was also the big show was uh, this uh, really interesting slash horrifying uh, Russian photographer named uh, Boris Mihailov. It was a huge retrospective of his work, which I alternately uh, found uh, fascinating and then repelling, and uh, uh, to, uh, I sort of became angry at the artist for a while, and then I'm still trying to figure out exactly uh, what to make of it. But basically, uh, he's a Ukrainian photographer, and he's been taking photographs of everyday life and often the disturbing, shocking, horrible side of everyday life uh, since the Soviet era, and so you understand that he comes by that bleakness of viewpoint honestly, and there's a certainly a real compelling eye to a lot of his photographs, but uh, in a lot of the people that he chooses to shoot and the way that he chooses him to shoot them, it sort of makes, you know, Diane Arbus look sentimental, right. shall we yeah. say. Um, and uh, there's a lot that is, you know, there were certain images there that I wish I could unsee, and I'm still sort of uh, trying to come to terms uh, uh, with him as he... Uh, an exploiter or a joker or both, and if he's a joker, who is the joke on? But anyway, it was certainly a uh, uh, an emotionally uh, powerful uh, thing to see that really examines the intersection between the uh, horrors of oppressive politics and the uh, poverty of uh, of the Ukraine, and uh, it sort of 
makes you uh, think and gag at a, about the same uh, measure. Well, that sounds um, well, it sounds like art, at least, certainly. So, uh, <laughs> you settled that controversy. How about outside in uh, the rest of Hanover? Is the, I mean, I don't know. I know that Hamburg pretty much got flattened during the war, uh, and Hanover had a lot of very interesting architecture from sort of the uh, late Baroque and uh, early uh, Romantic era. Is any of that survived? Is or is Hanover still tower blocks? Uh, one of the things that that Hanoverites always say, uh, I I think everyone said this to me was that uh, about uh, two thirds of Hanover was uh, uh, destroyed during the war. It was a big center of industrial production and therefore uh, something to be heavily bombed mm -hmm. and uh, was heavily bombed and so. Uh, about a third of it was left standing at the end of the war, and uh, what was rebuilt was rebuilt quickly. And so what Hanoverites will tell you is some of it is pretty and some of it is not so pretty. And even the not-so-pretty buildings, uh, because they are built to you know, stand alongside the very beautiful, uh, mostly sort of Baroque-era buildings that uh, remain, uh, it's, it's still pretty by the standards of, you know, crummy, quick, quickly built housing that you and I might be <laughs> By the standards with. of terrible post-war architecture. Yeah. And, you know, there is, there's some... The, the real horrible uh, architecture, uh, just as in Toronto, is the 70s architecture, yes. the brutalist uh, concrete things that are really, really out of place there now. But overall, it is a, a really uh, beautiful-looking uh, city. It's a city of about uh, 500,000 people, and the uh, streets are uh, wide and open. Uh, the buildings don't go up very high. And it has this sort of uh, lovely, uh, very walkable spirit and feels like a, and they've got an incredible transit system. And uh, it's just a really lovely place to visit. The uh, One of the big attractions are the Herrenhausen Gardens, which is a originally a Baroque-era uh, garden uh, complex that you can go out and walk around. And there's a, a, a bit of modern art stuck in a, a grotto by an uh, artist named Nikki St. Fall, who's sort of uh, uh, feminist Peter Maxi-type pop art uh, statues are also found downtown along the river. And uh, it's uh, also another uh, really lovely place to visit. So I was really gratified to be able to actually see parts of the city. We went to the City History Museum as well. And one thing that I was surprised to learn, and you, you might not be, is that actually uh, Hanover was at one point part of the British Empire. That's not surprising. That's where Britain had to get their king so that none of them would be Catholic. Indeed, yes. That's where the package deal came from that uh, got the uh, German kings uh, installed in in England. And therefore, uh, there is also a sort of a uh, English style to the architecture that you do not find in other German cities. There is a there is no doubt a Ken's time machine somewhere to uh, change the Salic law such that Victoria could have inherited the electorate of Hanover. And that, I think, would have put a spike in Kaiser Bill's uh, canon pretty early. Um, and, of course, uh, among the other uh, great pleasures of Hanover was the opportunity to uh, eat a lot of German food, which I'm going to have to uh, go on a somewhat uh, austere program for the next few days to, uh, to mitigate. <laughs> is, is, there, is, there a, is there a local Hanoverian specialty? I mean, I think pretty much everyone knows German food. Uh, is there a Hanoverian thing that people in Hanover eat that other people in Germany think they're crazy or are horribly envious of, the Hanoverian version of, of deep-dish pizza or whatever? Uh, well, apparently the local version of the that, that each uh, region of Germany has its own variation of, of, the, of currywurst, 
um, which is basically a sausage in red sauce, mm -hmm. um, and much different than the uh, hipster nouveau currywurst I've had here in Toronto. Let's see, what else can I tell you about the food there? The, the main thing that you learn is that in Germany, uh, meat is a vegetable. Yeah, I, I knew that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Again, you, you learned that in Texas, too, so it's not... Uh, there weren't many Germans in Texas, so maybe that's where they got it. So uh, one night before a, a gaming session, there was a, sort of a salady looking thing, and I was trying to figure out... Uh, it looks sort of maybe like coleslaw, so I asked what the what it was, uh, you know, what vegetable that was, and the vegetable was sausage. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's sausage coleslaw. It's much tastier than regular coleslaw. <laughs> um, and the one thing I did turn down was the uh, traditional meal of uh, raw ground uh, pork uh, spread on uh, delicious bread with uh, a topping of uh, sausage salad. That sounds like a that sounds like a delicious meal. I'm, I'm uh, well. They'll have to have me back to find a North American who'll dive into that phase first. Um, and uh, you continued your exploration of the world of beer in Hanover. I understand. Is yes, there a, indeed. A standout, a, 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 a much a must recommend. Something you can sidle up to a hipster bar on Yonder Street and embarrass them for not having. So th there was great excitement throughout the Germanosphere when it was discovered that I uh, have. Uh, relatively late in my imbibing career, discovered that beer is awesome. And uh, so there was a great desire to expose me to uh, the uh, national lifeblood of uh, Hanover and Germany. And uh, so luckily I had John Kowalik there at this event called A Beer with Robin, and John was there to also taste them and say uh, more seasoned beer cognoscenti type things. One of the beers that I really loved was actually the local beer of Hanover, which I did not have at the beer tasting event, but uh, it's called the uh, the Herrenhauser, and it's a, a Pilsner. And legend has it that it is made with uh, water that is extracted from beneath the old cemetery of town uh, and uh, uh, kissed by ghosts. Actually, the Ooh. kissed by ghosts part I just added, but I think no, that makes no, absolutely. even better I, I legend. I think they should keep that. Yes. Um, at the beer tasting itself, uh, my favorites uh, were the Astra Arschkult. Uh, Arschkult uh, translates roughly as cold ass. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a cold ass beer and uh, part of the long uh, beer making tradition of uh, ascribing to a beer something that is not the responsibility of the beer maker, but the responsibility of your refrigerator. But nonetheless, uh, was quite delightful. Uh, the uh, Schneider Weisse. Uh, Unser Aventino uh, was uh, quite delicious. I remember it as being uh, somewhat uh, chocolatey in nature. And the other one was a Doppelbach, Villa Gainer Doppelbach. Uh, and uh, it was uh, quite delicious. It has uh, stags angrily fighting on the label in order to uh, get a chance to taste this beer. And uh, we had some other uh, boring ones. And uh, one sort of uh, a fascinatingly terrible one that was like drinking a cupcake. That doesn't sound that terrible, except as a beer. I mean, if someone had put it in front of you and said, this is liquid cupcake, you might have liked it perfectly fine. I, I suppose, but it's uh, it's like uh, like a Lefe uh, brun that's trying too hard. Okay. <laughs> and I think uh, when, you're, when your beer has become your dessert as well as your vegetable, and <laughs> when your Lefe brun is trying too hard, I think that means we have to stagger out of Hanover before... Uh, things get out of hand.
Well, we're not going to stagger out of Hanover quite yet, because now it's time for Ken or and or Robin talk to somebody else. Here's an interview that I grabbed with John Kavalik uh, on my iPhone, so uh, the uh, sound quality may be uh, a little less than the uh, rest of the episode, but I hope the exciting content of this interview will more than mitigate that. I'm here with uh, John Kavalik, or as we call him here in Germany, John Kovalich. <laughs> that is the proper pronunciation. Um, it changed when my grandparents came through Ellis Island. but uh, So they have it right. So what what, uh, what part of the world is your name from? Uh, my, my, my dad's side of the family hails uh, from Slovakia. Uh, and <clears throat> so... I always kind of felt bad when the Slovaks broke away from the Czechs, uh, because it sort of was like Iowa leaving the United States. They've got the pig farmers, and they didn't really trust the intellectuals, and that whole Charter 77 business, and Prague. And it's like, no, no, I like being associated with Prague. Yes. Please don't do this. But you can tell how sad the Czechs are, because they haven't come up with a new name of their country, really. It's just <laughs> the Czech Republic. Yes. It's like, if you're... If your country name has a definite article in it, it just means they're sad and they're waiting for the Slovaks to come back. <laughs> they, they are a hopeful bunch. By the way, I just have to throw in, I, that there's nothing against Iowans. <laughs> I, I, I loves me a good loose meat sandwich as much as the next person. Well, you've, you've staved off uh, any attack on our podcast by uh, angry Iowans. I hope to. So, so this segment is uh, Robin and or Ken talk to someone else, and uh, I thought that we would kick this off by getting you to talk about uh, Raffle, or do you pronounce it F or R-F-O-L? I, I pronounce it Raffle, uh, and it's uh, a new party game which I created, and which is being published by Cryptozoic. It should be out sometime in May, I believe. I've actually got my first copy uh, flown in uh, with that first magical batch from China. It's a party game uh, about condensing words. We have left off the phrase texting. It's a texting game, but a full 25% of playtesters immediately uh, said that they would be bad at it because they don't text. Whereas once they started playing the game and realized it was word condensation was fun and easy, they enjoyed it. So it doesn't say texting anywhere on it, but the idea was to do a game about shortening phrases, shortening sayings, where, and still being able to get the meaning across to the judge. Uh, it's relatively fast play. Um, most of the phrases, there are you know, hundreds of phrase cards in the game. And all of the players except one will be shown the phrase. The phrase could be, most often it's from pop culture, there are some historical phrases, tear down this wall, uh, will be right up there with my cat's breath smells like cat food. But most of the phrases are very geeky uh, and relatively well known. But it's not important, you don't have to know the phrases to play the game, you simply have to get a person to say the phrase, even if they may or may not know uh, live long and prosper, uh, what that means. The Once all of the players, except the judge, see the phrase card, they've got 45 seconds to condense this phrase into as few characters as they can, while still retaining the meaning of the phrase. So the person with the who does this with the lowest number of characters shows their phrase to the judge first, 
if the judge can make out the phrase uh, this now reduced from the now reduced uh, uh, player sample, they both the judge and the player get three points. So it is in the judge's interest to guess the phrase as soon as he or she uh, can. And it is in the player's interest to make the phrase as understandable as possible. Um, if they get this the first time, three points for each. If not, it moves to the second player, who uh, the player with the second lowest number of characters used. If the judge gets the phrase this time, of course, it's a little bit easier because you've seen the first sample phrase. And they've got a second sample, so it's only two points this time. If not, the third player on, it's one point. Uh, and this goes on until either the phrase is guessed or the phrase is not guessed, and uh, then the player to the left of the judge becomes the new judge, a new phrase is chosen, and it goes around the table. And uh, one turn lasts about two to three minutes. A full game is probably played in less than half an hour. So it fits that party game uh, paradigm that I've been playing with. Now, I can attest to the fact that it's a, a lot of fun, because I played it in a playtest version a while back. And well, thank I you. I especially enjoyed it because I won. And the, <laughs> uh, there are a couple of interesting strategies that you can pick. I certainly found it useful to swing for the fences and sort of trust in the judge's ability to uh, perform pattern recognition. It's something that you can sort of underestimate uh, the someone's ability to catch a phrase from just a few uh, letters. And another sort of emergent uh, it seemed to be legal uh, uh, thing that people didn't think about is you can condense it in a way that is actually more of a clue toward what it is. Exactly. I believe John Nephew was the uh, from Atlas Games <clears throat> was the first player who I saw do that uh, naturally without any prodding. So one of the examples in the rule book is uh, Live Long and Prosper. And so we've got as an example, three condensations of Live Long and Prosper, and the very last example is just the words Spock says. And for some phrases, that's perfect, and some people have won using that. And it's, it's very interesting to see people play a game you've developed in a way you had no idea could be played. And that's the great advantage of being able to hang out with other game designers is that they're the ones who are going to try and press you by coming up with a sneaky uh, way <laughs> yes. or some sort of emergent play. And uh, and they can give you great playtesting feedback, not by telling you anything at all about what they thought about the game or giving you notes on the game, but just watching people play is enormously valuable in any playtesting experience, and I think it would be even more important with a party game where you're looking for something very simple, and uh, I would imagine that most of your playtest experience of that is you're not you know, seeking feedback so much as you're looking for behavior to observe. Precisely. Yes. Um, that That's absolutely it. Uh, and somebody at Cryptozoic made the comment that the playtester list I submitted for the rules essentially reads like a who's who of the gaming industry. So that was awfully nice, knowing so many very, very clever people. Right. Well, I, I, well you, we've heard of the humble, humble brag. I think that you've, you've <laughs> pioneered the credit brag. <laughs> so how much did this design evolve from your... Well, first of all, what was your initial conception? What was the moment that made you want to explore this as a as a 
base for your game. I uh, it was it actually most of my better ideas, and I've got a lot of bad ideas. I'll be the first person <laughs> to admit that. Uh, but most of my more useful ideas come across very quickly. And I was playing another game, which was ostensibly a texting game, but it wasn't. It was a game about matching symbols, and they had thrown this texting uh, skin onto this game. And I actually got somewhat angry about that. <laughs> I'm not sure why this would anger me so, uh, save for the fact that there are a lot of games out there where the th where the, the theme does not fit with the game. Well, it is very useful to have a propensity when you express anger to do so in the form of a highly commercial product. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, my first, my initial reaction was, and this did come within seconds, this isn't how you do a texting game. If you're going to do a texting game, this is what it should be. And within five minutes, the base of the game was there. And it's been in playtest for a couple of years now. Um, it's the, the core of the game is still essentially what was there at the start. Uh, so I'm hoping that's a good sign. So what did you, what if anything, did you wind up changing as a result of uh, seeing this play out uh, with other people? The length of the phrases. Uh, the perfect phrase is 20 to 25 characters. The fact that for a party game, you really want to shoot for moments beyond the game when players talk about what just happened. Uh, obviously, a game like Apples to Apples has got that in spades. Uh, a game like Cards Against Humanity has got that. Uh, the best party games foster this atmosphere, this table talk, this, this back and forth, this, you know, some of it is happy and joyous, some of it is malicious and joyous. And uh, so we tried to put in phrases that would just get people to smile. Even if you didn't know the phrase, um, I drink your milkshake, somebody will, and they'll be discussed, there'll be talk, there'll be laughs about this. Uh, the my cat's breath smells like cat food. To have the judge just say this out loud, even if people don't watch The Simpsons, that's just one of the better pieces of pop culture uh, uh, to come along in uh, the last few years. So, making getting the card mix right was important. Um, having more people, having a lot more people than just me contribute to the card mix was very important. Otherwise, it would have been Raffle, the game of 1980s, uh, 1990s pop trivia. So, uh, when the Cryptozoic folks started throwing in cards, it really made it everything, you know, it, it, it brought it to a point where I'd hoped it would be. I mean, yours really want to think that your knowledge base is universal and Obviously, nobody's is, and having hundreds of cards, uh, hundreds of phrases, which I had to look up and then go, oh, that's what the kids are doing these days. Now, but, apart from length, is there some other quality that makes for an ideal ruffle card? Humor is, you know, something which will get people smiling. Um, other than that, you know, some of them are very short. Some of them push the uh, 25 character limit. Um, you know, just having a nice mix is is kind of important. 
So to what extent in party game design is, is one-upsmanship, is the sense of competition between people playing essential to the emotional experience? I don't think it's essential in the slightest. I mean, to me, a good party game, a good party game has to be a good game. So if you do have a player to whom winning is important, they've got to be able to win it. But with Apples to Apples, that was my first real experience of a game where people didn't care who won. They just wanted to go on playing the game. And those sorts of games I adore. I mean, yes, you can play them to the you know the first person with ten cards wins, but having a, a sort of a social experience where people just want to keep on with the experience, uh, that that's this was a new thing to me at the time. And so watching that come about, watching it evolve, uh, and there's some other games like that. Uh, Cineplexity, the movie game, which is now uh, we are doing this double feature, having fixed some of, some of Cineplexity's problems. There's another game like that. It was just enjoyable. It's, it's still a game, but it also is a, a large element of pastime, which is uh, brought to the table as well. So what would be an example of it? So you're now discussing a process where you had a game, it got out of the world, and you identified problems with it later. So what were the problems that you found, and how did you address them? Cineplexity is the game that was brought to us at Out of the Box. Uh, Cineplexity was a very simple game. And I have this theory that sometimes... You, in, in much the same way you planned for the last war, you designed for the last game. We at Out of the Box had just finished Apples to Apples, and it was obviously a huge success beyond our wildest imaginations. With Cineplexity, we thought that throwing more and more cards into the game was a great thing, giving people much more content. Uh, for those folks who might not know, Cineplexity is a game where you get two cards, each of which has got an aspect of a movie. The movie is in black and white. The movie is a buddy movie. The movie is set in New York. The movie has got an umbrella for a prop. And the more general these cards are, the better Cineplexity works. Because people will bring their own movie-watching experience. This is not Cineplexity was not a game where people had to know the director of Porky's 3, to be able to move forward three spaces. I I really do not like those kinds of games at all. Uh, because they have such a... Uh, the impact in play on the skill set that you bring to the table is so enormous that if someone is so much better at film trivia than everyone else, which somebody will be, that that is essentially the determining factor in play. And, for example, I remember playing Trivial Pursuit uh, in high school and not enjoying it because... I was too good at it and got a lot of flack from the other players for having a brain full of trivia. And so that becomes unsatisfying, not only for the people who are losing, but also for the winner. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. It, it's uh, also on another level to me. It's just not a great game. You answer a question, you move. You answer a question, you move. Um, so, yeah, from both of those angles, uh most of the movie games out there just do nothing for me. With uh, Cineplexity, I saw something very new for the genre, and I really pushed it hard with Out of the Box. And, you know, sadly, I think we got it wrong, because instead of producing hundreds of cards, which by nature then had to become more specific, 
we should have gone with fewer cards, which were more general. And that's what double feature is. It's a very... There are 25 to 35 cards per category, and the other two fixes uh, we made with it were... And when I say we, it's the designers of the game and and myself. Uh, we've been working on this because it's been... I'm just angry that, you know, at Out of the Box we got this wonderful game wrong, and I really, really want to see this out there doing what this game can do. So we got rid of one category of cards entirely, which were the actor cards, which could bring the game coming to a squeaking halt. There would be games where some of the players did not know who Jimmy Stewart was. Not only could they not name a Jimmy Stewart movie, they had no idea. They're, you know, that much younger. And sometimes cards would clash with each other. Uh, two production cards would be played. Uh, what uh, the movie was made during the 1970s, the movie was made during the 1950s. Now, of course, there might be a handful of movies that were remade in the 70s, and yet that makes it so. And so the game would just stop, grind to a halt, which is an awful thing for a party game to do. So double feature, the redesign, is much more open. The cards are much more general. And it's uh, just, I, I love it. I, I really think we finally brought the Cineplexity idea where it should have been all along. A very fast, fun, open kind of game where people who are just general movie fans can compete with somebody like Ken Height, uh, you know, who bring this Rayman quality <laughs> otherwise uh, to such a game. Right, so uh, you're not going to be doing the uh, Napoleonic-era trivia game anytime exactly, soon. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so one thing I'm picking up from you here is that uh, despite your affable, uh, nigh-Canadian demeanor, you're in fact, uh, you're as a designer, you're driven by fury and anger. <laughs> uh, so uh, I keep it bottled up. Okay, well, I'll give you one more opportunity to vent. as a closing uh, gear switching here on uh, Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else. Uh, I would like to propose which of these following things makes you angrier and why. Uh, so the two categories are American poutine or editorial cartoons in which a recently deceased celebrity is greeted at the gates of heaven. <laughs> oh, that's that's difficult. The The anger is on different levels with those. There is the... Oh, dear, oh, dear. That is very difficult. <sighs> you mean this is like an apples to oranges comparison? It is. It's it's like a cards against John. <laughs> 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 um, I would have to say probably obituary cartoons where the deceased is at the gates of heaven, simply because that is a more universal... Sin, it belies a intellectual laziness. Uh, whereas American poutine, you know, at least somebody tried to do something different when they shouldn't have. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, the uh, foie gras with deep fried cheese curds and, and mustard gravy. Right. So misapplied innovation exactly. is on a, a higher plane. Yes. Than so they were trying to do hackery. something right. The you know no matter whatever level you know mis mistaken or what mistaken belief there was, they were trying to do something. They had an idea. I uh, an obit hat cartoon with 
dead celebrity of the week at the gates of heaven. That's just a cartoonist who wants to get on the golf course a little earlier that day. He's like, oh, great, somebody's dead. I can recycle this cliche. Precisely. Uh, well, John, it was uh, great chatting with you. Uh, thanks for stopping by and, of course, for being one of our sponsors here on the podcast. Uh, anything else uh, you would like to plug from your vast uh, output of uh, exciting products? Uh, well, we are hopefully going to have the Dork Tower Kickstarter coming, I believe, knock on wood in about a month uh, for the long-awaited Tower of Igor. So... That is what I'm gearing up for. And, and what is the Tao of Igor? The Tao of Igor is the latest, is the, the most recent uh, Dork Tower collection, which will, uh, and folks have been waiting for that for quite some time. I stopped publishing about five years ago. I didn't think it was going to be a five-year gap. It turned into that. That's what happens when one has a baby daughter. Um, oh, sure. Blame the kid. <laughs> it's my purse of many opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> Judah, who threw up? Oh, that was Louisa. <laughs> it's, it's you know, it's it's more plausible than blaming the cat anymore. Uh, but no, it, it's uh, I'm I'm kind of excited about it. The Kobolds ate my baby. Kickstarter went very well, um, and I think Kickstarter, you know, knock on wood, is a, a natural way to get uh, the new Dark Tower trade paperback out in front of people. So. Yeah, that, 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 is, that is pretty much where my mind space is at these days. Well, I can predict that in your coming Kickstarter that your mind space will be completely devoured for the space of about 30 days. Uh, so thanks again, John, for chatting with us. A pleasure. It's time once again to rip something from the headlines, and since uh, the headlines have been sort of spoiled for choice in uh, in Ray the Ripping over the last week or so as we record this, we have selected something that seemed to be sort of an intersection of a lot of themes that we've brought up uh, in a more jovial way uh, on the podcast before, but of course was a fairly uh, dramatic uh, crime and atrocity, and so we will try to address this in a rip-from-the-headlines segment that maybe points a way towards gamification without trivialization. And Robin, you have, I suspect, opening thoughts on uh, L'Affaire de Tsarnaev. Right. So the, the bombing of the Boston Marathon and the ensuing manhunt and climactic battle that uh, we wound up experiencing through social media, through, through Twitter, uh, struck me as perhaps an early candidate for the crime of the century insofar as it mashes up in postmodern fashion so many different elements of other crimes from the 20th century in sort of a, a mix master of uh, horrors and uh, motivations. And, uh, for example, uh, you can look at this and, and ask yourself if it is a uh, fits the pattern of a typical spree killing, which it does in many ways, or uh, you can also look at it as an act of terrorism, which of course it is as well, and there seems to be a certain amount of debate of people trying to pin down exactly what part of the nexus of, of elements that this story is the important element, and of course the whole, uh, I think the real answer is that all of them are, are matter, and all of the 
sort of strange combinations of events, many of which touch on things that, as Ken suggested, that we've been discussing as sort of fun, gameable things. Uh, here we see this sort of explosion of, of uh, hatred and violence and have to sort of uh, take a bit of a pause to see the effects of these things uh, in the real world. So, uh, for example, this story has uh, a lot of elements that remind us of the classic uh, spree-killing uh, pattern, uh, which are often committed by sort of directionless but ambitious uh, status seekers who uh, are, feel they are owed a place in the world but uh, do not uh, get it and then lash out uh, violently in a big act of murder-suicide. And the uh, actions of Tamerlan Tsarnaev uh, certainly fit uh, that pattern. And often uh, we sort of think of those as being uh, you know, purely acts of madness or purely domestic crimes, but almost invariably there is a political dimension to those in the minds of the uh, people who uh, commit them, often an idiosyncratic one. Often uh, they are committed by men who feel that they are owed a sense of privilege in the world and have been deprived of it by circumstance. Uh, unlike uh, is often the case with a, a spree killer, it did not start out with the uh, murder of the victim's mother, as uh, very often happens. She's in a, a another uh, continent. Perhaps that would have stopped them, although apparently uh, she sort of joined the older brother in a turn toward uh, the hardest of hard-edged uh, Islam a few years ago. So uh, who knows how that is to come out. Uh, there, you also have the element that you see from a lot of crimes where two persons are involved, that the there is a single dominating personality who drags along uh, an apparently sweet-minded but easily manipulated person into participating in these acts of horror. And that sort of crosses over not only to the Beltway Sniper, but you, the classic example of that is uh, Leopold and Loeb. Uh, even, uh, you know, if the, a Canadian example of that would be uh, the uh, Bernardo Homolka uh, killings, which sort of uh, combine serial killing with that level of uh, personal domination. So there's all these different historical resonances to this case, and, and a lot more of them than you usually get. It's like there was a grab back of elements from, uh, you know, the, the 20th century crime annals that made it all the more disturbing on top of the, uh, the death toll uh, at the event and the uh, number of uh, injuries at the event, life-changing injuries that uh, vastly exceed the uh, number of people who are actually killed there. Yeah, when you talk about 20th century crimes that this uh, evokes, the parallel that immediately struck me after they sort of figured out what was going on was the 1919 anarchist bombings that uh, a, a faction of the American anarchist movement decided to engage in sort of what they call anarchism of the deed and sent a large number of fairly sophisticated dynamite and pipe bombs to it's sort of an all-star cast of law enforcement and politics in the United States in 1919. And it was only because uh, some <laughs> plucky postmaster delivered one of the packages earlier than May 1st, which is when they were all supposed to get there and go off, that um, uh, the guy who got it, uh, he opened the wrong end of it. And so the bomb didn't detonate. He took it, He figured out it was a bomb, took it to the, the local cops who told, called the Pinkertons, and then they called the post office, and the post office said, yeah, we have a lot of identical packages that we kept back because they didn't have enough postage on them. And they sort of unraveled this, but it was it was intended to, you know, mutilate or kill 50 or 60 people. And 
it began sort of a, a wave of, or maybe culminated is a better term, because obviously anarchist bombings had been going on uh, for much of the early 20th century, in not just in America, in Russia and in France and other places. But um, but what it was was very much the same sort of situation that uh, begins to emerge with the Tsarnaevs, where you have an ethnic minority in America, the vast majority of whom are happily assimilating and happily going about their business, and the sort of, um, uh, in this case, it was the Italians, the Galeotti uh, faction of the anarchists, uh, you know, had been radicalized, usually by uh, a combination of foreign politics and a sense of, of uh, personal um, uh, uh, thwartedness and injustice, and had turned to very much, uh, you know, domestic terrorism in the sense that it's not directed by some hidden hand overseas. It's not like the shoe bomber uh, was, or obviously uh, 9-11. It's just locals, local Americans, who, for whatever reason, decide that what they want to do is express themselves explosively uh, in a, a totalitarian or totalizing political fashion that is, you know, whether or not the people are American citizens is at least alien to North American political tradition, and therefore the reaction in the case of the of the 1919 bombing wave was the Palmer raids, which wound up, you know, arresting probably an order of magnitude more uh, Italians and uh, Russians mostly, and a few Germans and such, and deporting them, but did sort of break the back of the anarchist uh, bombing movement in America, which leads, I guess, to sort of all manner of point and predict uh, either happily or sadly, depending on which side of the political spectrum you find yourself on, as to the possible end game of this particular situation, especially if, uh, as has been pretty much demonstrated to be the case in other spree killings, publicity given to spree killings is one of the things that motivates future spree killers. Right, and I think here, I, I, I don't think you certainly want to dismiss the fact that these guys were of Chechen heritage, so of course they uh, latched on to the available ideology of, of violence, uh, but throughout uh, history, as you point out, there there's always uh, an ideology that's out there for people who wish to engage in this sort of explosive act of grievance violence to latch onto, and uh, you know it's a pattern that recurs even when the ideology changes over time. And and certainly, if you want to look at the story of this guy and how he bounced around and tried different things to to make his way from boxing to uh, playing the piano, and uh, you know he felt this. Uh, you know, desire to make it and never uh, could and said that he, you know, never felt anything in uh, common with uh, Americans. And, you know, the guy's named after uh, a teamer, after Tamburlaine, for goodness sake. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the psychological elements are there in almost sort of a mockingly uh, textbook form. Uh, and another sort of uh, level of meta-ness to this story is that, uh, as soon as it came out, of course, the uh, the Infowars crowd, the uh, right-wing side of the uh, 9-11 truther uh, divide, were all over this, claiming that it was a false flag operation. Well, it turns out that one of the uh, sites that this guy was trolling for inspiration was Infowars. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is now a conspiracy theory developing around the actions of a guy who was inspired by conspiracy theory. And, of course, uh, that's another thing that we talk about a lot on this podcast and one of the reasons that I thought we had to uh, bring up this more serious iteration of that idea because that really also underlines the fact that there are 
I don't know if you would say that conspiracy theory is uh, any more dangerous than any other ideology, but it is an extreme ideology that uh, people who are preparing themselves to perform these extreme acts uh, can uh, be drawn to. Yeah, I think that the, um, the the notion of sort of the instant production of conspiracy, uh, along with the instant production of nonsense that also characterized this whole uh, week's uh, news cycle, is you know part of what I think makes it 21st century in that way, but is also uh, like you like you intimate, it's it's a sped up version of the myth making that happens around every other sort of dramatic uh, horrible event. Uh, the you know. The, the classic example in terms of domestic terrorists in America is the weathermen who uh, managed to attach themselves to a, um, a political movement that had a lot of good songs, uh, unlike so far political Islam in America. But uh, And as a result, Robert Redford is now making uh, teary-eyed uh, peons to them. And we, when we see the weathermen on, on TV in a movie or, in a, or have, hear, them, hear them referenced in a song or whatever, our response is not immediate shock and revulsion and disgust, as it would be if you know someone was was doing those kinds of movies about, um, say, uh, Starkweather and Fugati or other uh, spree-killing Americans. But there's there, there's this sort of mythic quality that has been built around them. The similar thing happened uh, with the Bader-Meinhof gang, obviously in Germany in the 70s, and it's only very very recently that you begin to see art approaching the Bader-Meinhof in anything other than the, the myth that it's sort of trying to strip the, the surface off them. And so this instant mythification is another facet of the 21st century that uh, has its, um, well, I, I suppose it has its, it, its, its good side and its bad side. And, you know, it's psychologically, I suppose, helps people sort of move through the, the immediate crisis, but also of course, it adds a huge amount of pernicious nonsense to the thing. Right. Well, the, the desire to romanticize violence, uh, unfortunately, is uh, all too common and transcends uh, political affiliations. But it's, uh, you know, and perhaps the worst kind of muddy thinking is the muddy thinking that uh, leads you to lionize the most violent, uh, extreme actors of, on, on whatever you know, side of the spectrum you lean towards. And, uh, you know, that's uh, just as upsetting whatever spectrum you're on, that the promotion of your political views through violence, I think this story kind of exemplifies that. And maybe people will take away, hopefully at least least for a little while, that these are, uh, you know, crimes of personal peak and attempted apocalyptic transcendence that... uh, you know, only do a disservice to whatever sense of actual grievance they're supposedly carried out for. Um, another interesting element of this that that uh, takes us into the Elliptony hut is the fact that this guy, Tamerlan Zarnayev, he had uh, this mentor figure who we don't know very much about yet. Uh, I think it's uh, doubtful that he will turn out to be a handler that connects him to international terrorism. I think he's but who knows, uh, by the time you hear this podcast, we may know something different. But there's this guy named Misha who sort of came into his life at this time when he was, uh, you know, still searching for direction. And uh, he, this is the guy who spun him into radical Islam. And uh, among other things, he is a self-styled exorcist, apparently. So that even gives us an elliptony hut aspect to this story. And I'm sure more of that is going to sort of uh, crawl out as people start pinning down the connections to 
uh, whatever uh, specific uh, subsect in the Caucasus uh, uh, Tamerlan sort of identified with. The Caucasus is full of uh, mysticism and occultism uh, of various sorts. Uh, the Gurdjieff is the best-known Caucasian magician uh, sort of, of of the modern tradition, but there are a lot of them, and Gurdjieff was sort of like, you know, you get the sense that he was the guy who couldn't quite cut it uh, back in the Caucasus as a magician, so he had to go impress Frenchmen instead. So there's, I suspect there's going to be a lot more elliptony available in addition to the sort of, you know, just weird uh, ability of blood and killing to create a, a elliptonic pattern. Obviously, as a guy with a whole shelf full of uh, occult interpretations of, say, the Jack the Ripper killings, I'm I'm not going to be the guy who points fingers at someone who begins to uh, similarly mythologize these events, although I do hope that it takes a, at least as long as it did for Jack the Ripper. So that uh, it it stops being um, it, it stops being quite as raw. It, uh, another uh, classic dyad who we now romanticize almost unthinkingly is of course Bonnie and Clyde, who killed I think eleven people uh, before they were brought down by the uh, by the posse. So you know again, I mean, there there's there literally no political context to, to Bonnie and Clyde. And, and during the depression, they were seen as sort of sticking it to the to the man to the bankers and such. So there was probably some degree of nonsensical, uh, wobbly, uh, politicizing of them. But, but now, you know, you, you watch a Bonnie and Clyde movie, even the, even the Warren Beatty movie didn't really have a political point. It was just about, you know, the unfairness of someone as good looking as Warren Beatty, not getting everything you wanted. Well, it was the, the contrast between, uh, his outward appearance and the fact that, you know, that he was impotent, right? So it was mm -hmm. a, yeah. an expression of, uh, his, uh, inner weakness and achieving transcendence through violence. Uh, the 30s crime comparison that came to my mind as I followed the story on uh, social media and the weirdness of that is basically that it was a sped up version of like uh, following the career of uh, John Dillinger. And of course it was occurring in super sped up postmodern time. Um, and th just to, before we finish, there's another weird conspiracy aspect of it. Well, not weird, but a, another conspiracy aspect of this, which is that, of course, as soon as it started happening, you heard, uh, you know, the false flag story that this, you know, all events of, of uh, disturbing violence must be committed by the government in order to justify whatever it is that the evil black helicopter government wants to do. And the few members of Zarnea's family that are not distancing themselves from the family and saying, yeah, they were a couple of uh, losers who did this, and it's a disgrace to our family. Her, their, their mother, of course, uh, as I suppose mothers do, is uh, claiming that they were set up, and obviously this is a, a false flag operation. She's using the same terminology that the Infowars crowd is, but uh, as a Chechen, what is uh, loony conspiracy theory here is something the government actually does in yeah. Russia. And yeah, when, when, yeah, when you're when you're when your model for how the secret police behave is the KGB slash FSB, uh, believing that the FBI is a competent and b evil, as I think a, a much uh, it's a shorter step than it would be for an American. Uh, who and of course we know that the FSB actually warned the FBI about this guy Tamerlan when he came back from Russia, and they said this guy was meeting with some hinky people. You know, you might want to keep your big boy shoes on and check him out. And of course, it got put in the big file of things the FBI didn't get on. Well, I think they even talked to him, but the thing is, is that they're, I think they put him in the, oh, well, it's it's a Chechen thing. That's nothing for us to worry about, a uh, mental mm -hmm. file. Right. But, you know, the, the Russian government, uh, you know, bombed apartment buildings in order to justify the war in Chechnya. So that's a, 
uh, you know, a completely different uh, world in which to uh, create conspiracy theories. The question is not there. It's not, uh, is there a conspiracy, but which conspiracy? Yeah, again, the, the, the sort of the atmosphere uh, that is produced uh, within Chechnya, which, again, we can't be too uh, eager to move forward onto the brother Sarnev, who I think uh, maybe it's possible that Tamerlan spent a little less than a month in Chechnya when he was in Russia getting his visa straightened out. But they were born in Kyrgyzstan. They moved to America in, you know, in, in uh, Tamerlan's case, in early adolescence. They, you know, they, they've spent a little time in Dagestan, which is sort of the next place over. But they have, you know, they, they, have, they have seen Chechnya slightly more often than I have. Uh, it's, it's not that we can, you know, sort of move immediately into the, the wilds of Chechnya for this, except insofar as uh, Tamerlan may have been radicalized by a specifically Chechen example of what is, in fact, obviously a global uh, uh, totalizing political movement. Well, according to early reports, this dude Misha is Armenian. So who, who knows what level of uh, different, you know, reverberating atrocities through history are uh, being re realized here. And and I suppose in in fairness to the uh, to the particularly Chechen wing of Al Qaeda, they have said that they have nothing to do with this. And that they never talk to the guy, and that he's a crazy person, and no one in their right mind would deal with him. There's a sort of a unifying group of um, that they call themselves the Emirate of the Caucasus, that are the same sort of um, uh, murderous bastards that Al Qaeda is everywhere. But they at least are stepping back from this, which is, uh, <laughs> I guess, a salutary um, uh, example that uh, people can be taught. Um, so uh, I don't think there's anything much in the way of a conclusion to come here uh, to here, except to you know, acknowledge that this is uh, a dark and horrible version of the things that we uh, enjoy talking about usually, and so I thought we uh, ought to ha talk about them here, and uh, now we've done it. more fun segment. Uh, let's end up with Consulting Occultist, in which Ken gives us the 101 on a fascinating figure from the history of uh, the occult and mystical. And in this instance, uh, Ask Lovecraft has asked us to have Ken talk about the extremely fascinating figure of Pascal Beverly Randolph, who uh, uh, crossed uh, racial boundaries in the 19th century, was a friend of Lincoln and a practitioner of sex magic and a founder of uh, a hoary Rosicrucian order. So, Ken, where do you want to start with that story? Well, um, Pascal Beverly Randolph is one of those people that, uh, in a just world, there would be movies about him and game supplements about him, and he would be referenced at least as often as Aleister Crowley is because, A, he's American and therefore more awesome than Aleister Crowley, and <laughs> B, um, uh, while he was not a particularly good husband and was probably an even worse father, he was not, as far as anyone can tell, a uh, woman-beating scumbag. So that's uh, on him. Uh, he was, sadly, uh, <laughs> just a little bit of a racist, um, but that may be blamed on him falling in with bad companions. 
uh, by which I mean white uh, occultists. And so he is basically began his career as a lecturer in the in in that great uh, burned over district in upstate New York. He was born probably somewhere in New York. Uh, eventually moved to Utica, which was at the time a hotbed of spiritualist activity, and uh, began a career as a simultaneous barber, doctor, and a lecturer on matters occult and political. He was an early uh, partaker not just of the occultist side of the Burndover District, but also the political side of the Burndover District. He was a, 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 a sort of a reformer uh, politically. He believed in uh, the sort of communal socialism that was in the air, in uh, in upstate New York in that time, uh, his big uh, break, his big move to to, to sort of the, the the main stage of the world came when he attended uh, the World Congress of Followers of Robert Owen, who's sort of the father of socialist pacifism, and uh, visited London for that. And while there, was prevented from delivering a message from the American socialist and occultist John Murray Spear, who is perhaps most famous for having built an electrical Jesus in a barn. But that is, no doubt, a different Consulting Occultist episode. Uh, and also uh, the name of my uh, favorite Fish tribute band. <laughs> That's right, the John Murray Spear. I, I think that they... No, uh, I, it was Electrical Jesus in a Barn. That, 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 that's the album title. That's right, yes. John, John, John Murray Spear is a um, uh, Ja Rule tribute band. But anyway, he went to London and addressed, or did not, in fact, address uh, the Owenite uh, Congress and was steamed and went to Paris, where he was made much of because of his... Uh, very great uh, uh, gifts. Even by that time, he was one of the uh, biggest orators in America. He would go around and, and give his big lecture on how things ought to be better, and that the spirits have advised me that we should all be nicer to each other and not grind the faces of the poor so awfully much. And uh, he had rock star good looks before there were rock stars. He had rock star good looks before there were rock stars. Um, so when he's in, so when he's in Paris, he meets uh, sort of Parisian occultists, and they introduce him to an awful lot of the sort of uh, impedimentia, I guess, of Western occultism. Among them, uh, the myth of the Rosicrucians, the um, uh, use of magic mirrors to uh, to scry and do magic, uh, the uh, taking of hashish, which became sort of a fundamental uh, component of his uh, preferred lifestyle. In that in that way, he is similar to Crowley, um, and he also was sort of introduced to the broader uh, legend. Of uh, of theosophy, in a, or not theosophy, of proto-theosophy, of Rosicrucianism, in a way that he had not been in America. He'd signed himself the Rosicrucian in a number of articles, uh, because he knew the name, probably from uh, mail-order uh, books. But it was in Paris that he sort of took on board uh, the European uh, version of uh, mystical nonsense. And then, much to his credit, uh, when he came back to America jettisoned all of it except for the practical hard-headed parts, the sex magic, the mirrors, and the hash. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, he, he did not particularly buy any of their, you know, ridiculous theories and lineages. He thought that, you know, his own lineage came from his, uh, his uh, channeled contact with Zoroaster and other great minds. And in a later book, he even said, basically, under the name of Rosicrucianism, I have promulgated nothing but the doctrine of this tawny mystic meaning himself, and that it's, you know, an indictment of the racist attitudes of other people that they wouldn't listen to stuff coming from Pascal Beverly Randolph, but they would if he was claiming to channel dead white guys. And so that sort of uh, in-your-face attitude is part of why, despite his, you know, very real personal failings, 
I kind of think that Pascal Beverly Randolph has got it going on, and I'm very, very fond of him. Also, of course, I'm fond of anyone who was a devoted Republican and a long soldier in the fields for Abraham Lincoln. So you got to like that about the guy. He uh, wound up in New Orleans after the war, teaching a uh, colored at a colored school. Um, was on a basically a tour to raise money for that. Uh, went to Boston, sort of the, the hotbed of abolitionism back in the day. Uh, at that point, he met a um, uh, probably another another woman, and it was probably by then that he f- finally abandoned his first wife. Uh, he set up a, another sort of occult uh, organization in Boston that may or may not have been um, the uh, Brotherhood, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, which only emerged into the world in 1884, well after Randolph's death, but claimed, uh, but basically used all of Randolph's books as their holy books. He called his order the Brotherhood of Eulis, E-U-L-I-S, which was basically sort of a a sex magic uh, circle, uh, for lack of a better term, and uh, while uh, going around uh, the country touring for that, he fell off an elevated railway platform in Toledo, Ohio, and basically was unable to leave Toledo, Ohio for the rest of his life, which I guess... If you you know believe in cosmic justice, yes, but is, it's a punishment on Earth. Exactly, he certainly paid uh, for his um, uh, <laughs> for his sins, such as they were. But he um, he spent some time in Toledo. He met another uh, attractive young girl and married her in uh, either common law fashion or uh, <laughs> in a jurisdiction that wasn't all picky about how many other wives he may have had laying around. And then died in what was probably a suicide, although there is at least some evidence that a deranged uh, fellow Rosicrucian killed him. And uh, certainly the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor did everything it could to play down the uh, the suicide uh, uh, message. But the Theosophists, who were the rivals of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, uh, played it up. So I guess you can sort of pay your money and take your choice. It is worth saying that the uh, the only biography of Randolph, which is by John Patrick Devaney and his worth every penny you pay for it, um, says that it was suicide. So, you know, for, for what it's worth, someone who, for, for his sins, has had to examine actual uh, newspaper records and probate uh, has, has determined that it was um, that it was uh, either suicide or one of those cleaning his gun and it went off type accidents. So uh, I can hear the assembled podcast listeners, while not wishing to seem crass, wanting to know about uh, what specifically is meant when uh, he's practicing all of this sex magic. Well, um, here's the thing about Pascal. He goes through his life, uh, I call him Pascal, his, his son, <laughs> by the way, his, his, or you can also call him PBR, but that sounds like you're being hipster avant la lettre. Yes. Um, his son, by the way, was his, final, his last son. He had a number of, of children, one of whom died of neglect, which is part of why one does not want to endorse him entirely. Uh, too sweet, but his 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 uh, his final son uh, was named Osiris Buddha Randolph. Which, when you're named Pascal Beverly Randolph, the desire to sort of move it one better, and also uh, Osiris Buddha Randolph got a real medical degree, not a pretend medical degree. So, in many ways, perhaps the noblest of all the right. Randolphs. And later, he changed his name to Zowie Bowie, I believe. Zowie Zowie Bowie Randolph. Yes, he became Ziggy Stardust Randolph. Um, <laughs> who still is among us today. But uh, Randolph went through his um, career. Uh, he, he began as a spiritualist, and then he rejected spiritualism when he met the mesmerists in France. And he said, oh, spiritualism is wrong. You're not supposed to let beings possess you. 
what you're supposed to do is magnet- magnetically tune yourself to what they're saying, because if they if you let them possess you, they could be bad, evil spirits. And he warned people very much about what he called the dangers of uh, blending, which he was very much against. And again, you can sort of draw uh, racial connotations to that, but what he meant by it was the um, the allowing of other spirits to dictate stuff to you. And that's part of what the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor used to slap the theosophists around. But in a similar fashion, when he is talking about um, making sure that your magic is not promiscuous, making sure that your magic is not, uh, you know, that you, you square all your corners and, and make sure that everything's going to work properly, that's his attitude to sex magic. His attitude to sex magic is, first of all, um, that men don't know how to make love to the ladies, uh, which was al- almost certainly true in the 1860s and is probably truer than we w- would not want to imagine now. But he, uh, as his part of his medical practice, would engage in... Um, you know, people who had sexual complaints, and one of the things that he would do is, again, to re- keep this a family-friendly podcast, he would encourage techniques that encouraged both partners to enjoy release during the process. And this experience, which he uh, credits to a dusky Arabian lass who uh, uh, taught him the secrets of love and the alkahest during his time in the Levant, um, which he actually apparently had a time in, Le- in the Levant, which puts him one up on a lot of occultists, um, was to him a, an initiatory experience along with hashish, and that having proper sex with someone who is enjoying it is so much better than regular sex that it must be a magical sacramental experience. But in order for that to happen, you can't be doing it with people that you don't love. You can't be doing it outside marriage. You can't be doing it, you know, without, um, uh, with, with birth control. And you can't be doing it, uh, Again, he was a product of his time with someone of the same gender as you. And all of those things, which Crowley, of course, encouraged probably all of them simultaneously, um, are the are, are, are sort of the, the wild libertine side of sex magic. Whereas Pascal Beverly Randolph, if, there, if there's an American Protestant version of sex magic, this is it. I mean, it's very much a sort of, you know, make sure that, that, that everyone involved is part of the mystery and make sure that you treat it like a proper... Um, uh, uh, like a proper goal, and get everything you possibly can out of it. it so it's, it's possibly has more to do with tantrism than with what we normally think of when we think sex magic with a K. I, I would I would say that tantra may be part of it, but as far as I know, and again, there is a lot of of Hindu uh, mysticism beginning to work its way into the West, but the big floodgates don't open for another generation. I, I think it's it's most likely that what he was doing was sort of. There's a pseudo-Masonic notion that the, the, there's these two equal pillars, these two equal parts, that when they're brought together, again, his, his literally his first spirit communication is with, well, actually his first one is with his mother, which is just beautiful. But then his second spirit communication is from Zoroaster, sort of the father of dualism. And his occult philosophy is sort of a American version of Gnosticism, which is sort of, there is a secret that is only available to the initiate, but that any American, by gosh, can pull up his boots and be an initiate if he works at it. Sort of the Dale Carnegie version of, of magic that, that Americans have. When I was reading um, PBR, I, I was constantly comparing it to the sort of the more mystical side of Mormonism. Because like uh, Joseph Smith, Randolph believed that the job of mankind was to progress through the cosmos until one became a god of one's own planetary sphere. And... Uh, he had a number of other, I mean, obviously the, the connection with magic mirrors, uh, Joseph Smith had the, the scrying spectacles and other uh, sorts of things like that. 
uh, R- Randolph has that. That's probably just a coincidence, but I think the reason that it appealed to him may have been because that was so much a part of that burned over district, which again also produced Joseph Smith. Uh, so you can you can look at, at at Randolph as as a part of the similar strain in America that produced Mormonism, less so than I think you can look at him as part of the strain that produces um, uh, the, the the spiritualists. Although he was a spiritualist and even though he re- rejected many of their tenets, had no problem doing um, sort of seances and things like that to, to earn a couple of nickels. Right, because that was the default starting point in the yeah. 19th century. And, and it is interesting that after his horrible accident in Toledo, people would come to him, and he was unable to speak or write as Pascal Beverly Randolph. He was he was very, very badly injured in his in his accident. But when he would channel someone, he would be completely lucid and able to engage in conversation and, 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 and talk and, and even move around in ways that he was not able to when he was not channeling someone, which makes one suspect that on, on your perennial question, is he a charlatan or is he a true believer? I think we maybe have to point a little bit towards true believer because for goodness sake, if you're, if you're a charlatan and you can do that, why are you still in Toledo, Ohio? And so you mentioned earlier that although he was uh, involved in social justice and was an abolitionist and a Republican and a friend of Lincoln, that he uh, wound up uh, getting a bit of uh, white occultist uh, racism on him, which is a, a stunt uh, given that he was uh, uh, multiracial. So uh, what happened there? Well, the, the the thing is that part of the thing that I think you have to decide when you're a, an American of any sort in the 19th century is, uh, and if you are capable of crossing racial boundaries the way that uh, Randolph was, is are you going to go for the white crowd or are you going to go for the black crowd? And you can't go for both crowds. And we talked about that with Black Herman earlier. The part of his genius was to say, nope, I'm going for, 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 the, for the black crowd. I'm going to be the black uh, Thurston. I'm going to be the black uh, Herman. I'm going to really bring it. And Randolph wants to go for the white crowd. And I don't, I don't know if that's because he's partially white, and so he believes that he is as white as the next man. Uh, certainly when he writes his autobiography, he claims that his mother, who was a, a, an African-American woman, was of Malagasy blood and therefore had no African blood in her. Although he was, he was certainly black enough to be kicked off Lincoln's funeral train. Yeah, he was black enough, to, although that may be an anecdote that someone else told. It's not certain that that happened. But he was certainly black enough to be kicked off the stage at the World Socialist Conference. Which would I think it, it, it's 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 uh, it, it's not in question that he suffered um, uh, from white racism his whole life, um, and then when he worked on a, a book of pre-Adamite lore, which is the belief that there were humans on the earth before Adam, <laughs> uh, his his work of pre-Adamite lore is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, he doesn't just argue it from the Bible. The Bible, uh, the pre-Adamites, as one might imply from their name spent a great deal of time trying to reconcile the Bible and the notion that there were people before Adam with lots of biblical and theological arguments. He was one of the first people to argue not just from other um, from other m- mystical traditions, from Arabic lore and from uh, Hindu lore and from other uh, mysticisms, but also scientifically. He His pre-Adamite book talked about the fact that they were finding fossils in the Neander Valley that vastly predated you know, the, the 6,000 BC, uh, 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 4,000 BC uh, era of Adam. And so he made his argument not just mystically, but also paleontologically and anthropologically. But his argument was that obviously what Adam is, is the first truly spiritual man. 
that he is, you know, one of the first people to make that step on the way to individual godhood that he saw that you needed to do. But certainly human beings, as opposed to beasts who are like human beings, what were called hominids back in the day, um, were, uh, were, were the people going around. And he believed that there were different human races that evolved on all the continents. And so you had, um, since they were finding these fossils in Germany that at the time were the oldest fossils known, obviously the Europeans were the oldest and therefore the most evolved of the human races. And since no one had found anything in Africa, it was obvious that Africa was the last and latest uh, human creation uh, and therefore was very far behind the other races in uh, evolution. And so it's it's sad that part of the racism that he imbibes is that, you know, that, that thriving tradition of Darwinist racism that is uh, going on in the 19th century. But uh, because Lord knows he's also getting plenty of it from, from occultists and, uh, and, uh, and other folk. But it, it is interesting that, uh, as you say, that since he is, um, he is uh, a mixed race, uh, depending, uh, the exact mixture, again, is, is a matter of question, but um, that he is still sort of trapped by his own ideology into believing these things. Well, I think that's another uh, fascinating installment of the uh, Consulting Occultist, and I'll have to learn more about uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph. And I think that is uh, not only uh, a conclusion to that segment, but a conclusion to our exciting podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Extol the Reinheitsgebot at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>